Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jared Smith. Jared specializes in the archaeology of the indigenous Diné people of the Alaskan interior. He works heavily with Diné elders, informants, and professionals from a variety of organizations. He also incorporates linguistics, mythology, and ethnography into his studies to better understand the things he digs up. Join me in learning more about life in ancient Alaska, a vast, understudied region. The way Jared incorporates Diné place names into his understanding of the region's history is really fascinating, and the deep-time continuity of Diné culture will blow your mind. My name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Hey Jared, how's it going? Thanks for thanks for talking to me. Great, it's wonderful to be here. So, I, I guess the, the topic of the day is the book that emerged out of your dissertation, The Gift of the Middle Tanana. Mm -hmm. I guess before we, we dive into the book, um, what would be your, your elevator pitch? Sure. Introducing yourself to people, like your, your background and like kind of your professional interests. Sure. Well, first, um, I would also like to do a land acknowledgement right now. Um, so we're at the National Park Service building here in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is on the tra traditional lands of the Chena Diné people. And uh, I live just on the traditional lands next door, which was the Salshiga people. And uh, then a lot of my archaeological work has been on the neighboring group just upriver from there, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. which was the um, Debedi Na'in uh, Diné people, uh, the, the Shaw Creek people, and uh, currently doing some more archaeological work on the next group upriver from that, <laughs> which was the Jizacheg Na'in, or um, the Good Pastor River Diné people. And uh, so having acknowledged the Diné people who um, have been here since time immemorial and uh, remain here and are very involved with many aspects of work here at the National Park Service, the university, and different uh, uh, political and uh, economic groups around the, the town, um, I'm indebted to working with them and their legacy on the landscape. About myself, um, I've been, I originally came up to Fairbanks in 2009 um, from Montana. I'd finished a, a cultural anthropology degree there and we just hit massive recession around the country that had kind of been building for a couple years and yeah. there was no jobs anywhere. So like many grad students, a good time to go to grad school is when there's an economic downturn and you can't get a job. <laughs> so <laughs> I came up to Alaska. So I came up in 2009, finished my master's in 2012 and uh, started working um, with a CRM company here in town. Anyway, the uh, my company got this uh, contract for doing cultural resource surveys for the Susitna hydroelectric project. And as part of that, um, we, we had a cultural component where we were collecting all these oral histories. And uh, so I started running across place names, traditional Diné place names um, that were in there. And I was like, well, I'm the GIS manager. I might as well start mapping these out. Um, this will really help me get an idea of understanding the landscape a little bit more. And Oh my God, I really loved it. <laughs> so um, anyways, uh, I met this professor down at Kenai Community College now. His name was Alan Boraz. He's since uh, passed away a couple years ago. And um, 
he, he, being a small community college, he taught all four subfields of anthropology down there, biological, linguistics, cultural, and archaeology. He was mostly an archaeologist, but he really emphasized that every anthropologist should have a solid four-field approach to their work, whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of, that's, you know, pretty old school. I think we consider that now almost. Yeah, it seems like nowadays each branch is kind of running away into its own rabbit hole and yeah. doing its best to avoid all of the others. <laughs> it's just there's uh, there's so much complexity that we've brought into each of these branches it's difficult to um, to become an expert in all of those. And mm-hmm. archaeology, you know, I mean, we're not just archaeologists, but we're geologists, we're ecologists. Uh, <laughs> 20, 20 approach field or something like that. You know, we just have all these different um, academic legacies coming into our minds, which is really fun. Yeah. But I thought that that would be a really interesting approach. I um, ended up being invited by Dr. Charles Holmes to investigate these house pits. Uh, well, one house pit that was out at Swan Point site, um, which is very famous for its uh, Beringian components that are 14,200 years old. Um, and then there was se- several other sites in the region um, and uh, that had house pits. And I thought that was a really um, cool. I, w- I really wanted to see the domestic family sphere of archaeology, mm-hmm. not just Household get to archaeology. A, right. So when you go out to like a, a hunting site or a, a place where animals were being butchered, you're only seeing a very discreet view of behaviors by mm-hmm. a discrete subset of yeah. the people that yeah. lived in the village. And and when you go to a village site, you're getting to the nexus. There's elders there, there's children. Uh, so it can be a lot more complex to uh, try to understand and, and interpret behaviors. But And... I think maybe uh, it'd be good to now zoom out for a second. And a lot of people listening are going to have never come to Alaska. Mm -hmm. And they will have just a rough image of Alaska in their head. And maybe they kind of have the image of like the Aleutians trailing off the left side. Um, And maybe they can kind of picture the southeast kind of along the edge of Canada. Yes. But beyond that, we we might want to sketch out a little bit of the geography of Alaska for people. So you've got two primary mountain ranges that sort of slice it into yes. thirds. So you've got the first third in the south, which is where Anchorage is. Yep. And then running east to west, you've got the Alaska Range mm-hmm. with Denali. And then north of that, there's the interior, which is already the size of probably... Montana. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some, among one of the biggest U.S. states, right. even if it was cut off on its own. <laughs> and then... And then there's the Brooks Range bounding that yep. on the north side. In the vicinity of the Brooks Range is where you're hitting sort of that transition between a subarctic and an arctic world, right? right. Forest is kind of petering out. And yeah. The tundra is, is left. And, and the north slope, the last third of Alaska, north of the Brooks Range, mm-hmm. that's just a very different scene, polar bears and yeah. sea ice. Your work is largely focused on that middle third, just north of the Alaska Range, right? Uh, can you can you talk about that landscape a little? So we right here, where we're doing this interview, we're in Fairbanks, which is a pretty much kind of dead center in the middle of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's easy, I think, for people to imagine. And um, we're alongside the Tanana River, uh, which flows for, I think, 700 miles. Um, mm-hmm. Huge river, one of the uh, largest rivers in North America. It was also the very last major river valley for um, uh, Euro-Americans to um, officially explore. Mm-hmm. Um, our mm-hmm. first uh, documentation of that was in the 1880s with Lieutenant Allen. 
and then people really didn't come until 1902 and that was when the first uh, white settlers started moving into the valley yeah my archaeological work is just upriver from Fairbanks, mm-hmm. about two to three hours drive. Um, and so we call this area the Middle Tanana Valley. Currently, the native people here um, are part of the Diné, the Diné people. It can be described as having, I think, 56 official languages between here and Canada. Um, and they've and been uh, bestowed the name Athabascan as a sort of... Um, that was a, now outdated. Right. It was a place catch-all. name um, that was uh, described grass that was used for basket making um, mm-hmm. that was alongside a, a, a lake in Canada. And uh, it was used by, uh, I think, other native groups. Um, usually people ever, rarely ever have a name for themselves. You know, mm-hmm. if you're describing yeah. yourself, we're just like, oh, we're just people. We're just yeah. us. Yeah. But we always have names for other people around yeah. us, right? And so the. The native groups to the south called them the, the, the Grass Lake people, the Athabascans, and they passed mm-hmm. that on to the, the trappers who passed that on to other whites and explorers, and it's carried over. And so if people are trying to learn more about this later and they find yeah. the term Athabascan spelled with a C or a K, Many depending different on where ways. you find it, yes. that's, well, we should, that is referring to the Diné. Right. We should um, acknowledge, though, that uh, this has become uh, considered now a colonizer term. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's pejorative, and we're trying to uh, raise awareness to not use it uh, yeah. so much. And instead, we use Diné, which in the Athabascan or Diné languages means people. Yeah. Yeah, Diné people, Diné speakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, so, yes, the Middle Tanana people um, that I work with are Diné speakers. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the uh, people of the interior and South Central are um, speak a Diné language, which is mutually intelligible um, across uh, borders. Um, There's not really hard uh, language barriers. Um, Mm -hmm. You might not be able to to speak your neighbors, uh, to verbally speak your neighbor's language, but you can understand them. Yeah, yeah. Shades of dialect. Yes. Um, Dialectical continuum, as, as yeah. linguists call it. <laughs> and this isn't a small area. West as well, right. but covered an area somewhere between uh, Turkey and Mozambique, which yes. would be the 36th largest country in the world. It's, it's an obscure place in terms of, necessarily in terms of its scale or its importance. Right. Um, Right. So I worked, um, you know, one one reason that I felt like the place name should be so important to mm-hmm. um, understanding my archaeological research was I felt like that was that would be a really unique and novel approach to my dissertation work. So I just um, started asking different elders, you know, as I worked with them or encountered them or you were teaching an archaeologist. What what would you say is the best way to start understanding archaeology, local archaeology here in Alaska from a native perspective. And mm-hmm. one after another, they just would think for a bit, and then these elders would tell me, start with the place names. If you understand the place names, you'll understand our history, and you'll understand our connection with the land. And I honestly I had no idea what that meant, but I was like, all right, that's enough for me to run with. So um, I started uh, working really closely with different linguists here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and their unpublished notes that are just kind of curated here at the library and mapping just every single place name I could get mapped. And there are thousands of place names mapped at this point, right? We've mapped 
500 um, here in uh, Diné place names here in uh, yeah Alaska alone. Um, I've also done a lot of mapping with the surrounding languages, Ayak, uh, Yupik, uh, Unangan, and uh, Inupiaq, just to help understand those, those borderland and contact areas. We have um, mapped an equal, a statistically equal number of native place names as English, official English place names in the state now. Wow. And, uh, and it's really incredible because um, we, you know, uh, as, as just human beings, we can't, we can't, no single person can ever memorize that many. I think we, someone once uh, did a study where it seems like 500 place names is an average that any single person can ever remember. Um, and that just kind of plateaus there. Huh. And so we have this data set that's really been orally, um, curated um, across communities and we never found like in all I think uh, oh, I had several hundred uh, good per I think it was six percent of the place names Dene place names um, were elicited in two at least two different uh, uh, languages mm -hmm. neighboring languages and 80 percent were elicited by at least two different speakers and I still have yet to find um, uh, speakers that say, no, this place was named such and such. No, yeah, this place was a, named a completely different. It was yeah. always in agreement, which is just absolutely incredible. And so that led us to this hypothesis that these place names are not um, fluid or flexible. They're not being reinvented or reimagined every so few generations, but mm -hmm. actually this is a curated data set that's heavily conservative. Basically, these mm -hmm. names are very ancient, and there was a, a cultural impetus, whether it was recognized or not, to maintain those names as they were and not change them. There is, there is something related to that that I wanted to ask about um, when, when reading your book. Um, you mentioned um, the idea that you can see traces of older languages left over on a landscape. So, f for instance, maybe you could find a place name in France with a Celtic root, but that, but that, that's not really something you see a lot of. Right. That is uh, um, really developed um, in England, uh, great across Great Britain. Um, we have historically, you know, we have uh, the British Celts in their language, which mm -hmm. was. Um, uh, then the Romans came in with Latin, and mm -hmm. then the Saxons came in with their Old German. Mm -hmm. The Normans uh, came in with yeah, French. Just a the layer Danes cake came of in, right? Place names. And so there's a lot of place names that um, have what we call substrates of those earlier place names that are being uh, carried over. So we look for those clues um, in uh, place name studies, and we were very—I was very interested to see if we see anything like that. Even one place name that has a substrate or a substrate candidate of something earlier. And um, in these interior Diné languages here in the Tanana Valley, we do not have any. There, there's absolutely none. And um, so the linguist that I work with, Dr. James Carey, he's been, um, he's been up here 50 years, um, not only studying the languages, but writing uh, these, these dictionaries for each of these languages. So he has this extensive lexicographical um, data set. And uh, so as we get to um, Diné languages that are in touch with, um, they border coastal peoples. Mm -hmm. Coastal peoples in Alaska have unrelated languages. And uh, so there are a lot, there is place name borrowings back and forth, especially in places where um, uh, 
they might have been abandoned by, for example, the Aleutic people, maybe Diné people came in after that. Um, they were neighbors, and so they would often uh, just take those place names over, and yeah. Yeah. they would adapt them to their own language. Um, so on the coastal areas, you see that happen a lot. Here in the interior, we have none. Huh. And in the the entire the entire languages that we study, we find no no words, no borrowings. Um, wow, everything is fully analyzable within Diné. You don't even have words that are, well, that's not a Diné word, but we have no idea where it comes from, and it's just being used. Yeah, and that's almost I, I think as a native English speaker, that's really difficult, almost to understand because <laughs> our there language is a Frankenstein of languages. Yeah, it's English. It's English. <laughs> It's like the most successful virus language out there because it yeah. just came, everything it comes into contact with, we have, it just grabs words, grabs it, yeah. and pulls it over. It's, it's wild. <laughs> so yeah, we have two different spectrums, English and then, and, and so, Diné. so then the message of that is a deep continuity, right. right? Of this landscape, not seeing successive cultures replacing one another or competing for the same right. land or, 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 uh, new dominant language groups. And that seems to be a, a, a theme that re- recurs in your book is this continuity, this, this. Right. Uh, so we, um, so we see that we, we established that, okay, these, these languages were here. They didn't have, there was no, they didn't supplant someone else. Um, yeah. and that can mean one of two things. Either they were the first people here and there was no other people. There was another people here and maybe there was some sort of abandonment, mm-hmm. you know, and they came in after. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, but unfortunately, um, since this language was never written down, we can't correlate it to archaeological artifacts directly, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, that leads some more, to some more brain stretching. Um, like, how, how do we establish um, a temporal uh, understanding to this language? What means mm-hmm. time immemorial to the yeah. rest of us, right? Yeah. And uh, so Dr. Carey um, provided this uh, a wonderful model back in the 90s where he just took uh, one uh, stem of a place name, for example, the word river. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have a place name for river, um, it would have the name of the river, like perhaps you have a river that means sheep river in English. Mm-hmm. You would say Debe, which in Dene means sheep, and then you would add Na at the end, which means river. So Debe Na means sheep river mm-hmm. and uh, just like in English so um, every almost every um, name for a stream has that suffix at the end or, or root or stem um, that just means river so mm-hmm. we we take that and then we look to see how that that word changes across different languages does everyone have the same one do they all or they all have little subtle differences right so in uh, Denina, Atna, um, these places in South Central Alaska, where archaeologically we can see um, they've only been there for about a thousand years, um, they use the word na for river. Hmm. And so we say, okay, they, they use that word for river, they've only been in these places for a thousand years, everybody seems to acknowledge that, um, there's no question um, either that, with, also with uh, traditional, um, uh, uh, traditional knowledge down in that area, we'll say that's the the last form of this word to evolve, the simplest form. Um, and uh, so the next oldest one is a little bit more complex, and hmm. that one is uh, Ndig. And that is used here in the middle Tanana. And if you move a little bit further upriver, you have... Upriver being the upriver, east. Yes. A little uh, bit south and east. Nigan, 
and which is a little bit different, a little mm-hmm. bit more complex. And then you have, and it comes from these uh, Proto-Dene root words, uh, Nika, uh, which means rivers over there. The rivers outside our territory, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting um, uh, way to think about it because it almost puts a perspective. Yeah. And uh, so we had this uh, a seriation model of this this word for um, river that developed in the very oldest form of uh naming a river comes from the wa- the word to, which just means water. And most Diné languages will have a word that sounds very closely like that too. And uh, so in the oldest, um, the core regions of uh, Diné ling- linguistic areas, which is northern BC and uh, southern Yukon, all lakes are named to, it's just mm-hmm. water. Um, all rivers are named to. When you get into the upper Tanana, the rivers are named to, but the lakes are not. They're given a, a very unique identifier, which is men. So now, now it's like water that's in lakes is being differentiated from water that's in streams. And then as you move a little bit further down, you have another differentiation that happens. Now we're saying, well, water that's in rivers, we're going to call stream. And that's Negan, Ndig, and, and then finally Na. But also in the middle Tanana region, we have a very unique uh, reversal from na, which is nda. And so if you go to the very central part of the Tanana River, uh, we see like about 16 streams that are named nda. And that also means stream, but it's just a very subtle reversal. And so we look for those clues that say uh, we can actually pinpoint where these names developed and then yeah. seriated out on t- on across the landscape. And uh, we only see that along the Tanana River here in Alaska. The Copper River to the south, which is just as long. In the upper Copper River area, we have a lot of twos, the very oldest stem, mm-hmm. and then everything else is na, the very youngest stem, and nothing in between. Um, we see the same thing with the Yukon River. Um, other rivers, it's just mostly just na. And so that really tells us that the Tanana Valley um, for Alaska and the Yukon Territory, uh, Diné, was probably the core area of linguistic antiquity and development for all the Dene wow. people. The um, coolest, oldest place name, though, is this uh, Donnelly Dome, uh, which is mm-hmm. near Delta Junction. It's this isolated hill that's shaped like a parabola uh, because during the, the late glacial maximum, um, these glaciers poured out of the Delta River Valley, surrounded this hard granite dome, and just carved away at it. Yeah. And then um, by about 12,000 years ago, the, the glaciers receded around it. Um, and the name for that hill is Zaya, which means heart amongst the glaciers. And that name makes sense when you know that that <laughs> hill was once surrounded by glaciers. It would yeah, just appeared yeah. as a dark hill surrounded by glaciers, and we've got really good um, dating that those glaciers left 12,000 years ago. That's um, really cool. And, and opened that that's up. That's super and, cool. And that's a name that um, was probably there for a while in order to, um, you know, wasn't that people saw, that, saw it there right at the very end, you know, the glaciers left, but people were probably interacting with it. The Swan Point site is within uh, sight of that hill. Swan um, Point being? 14,200 yeah. years old at, at its very oldest. And so we actually have a yeah, good likely. evidence of a place name corresponding with that very oldest um, human component there, which I think is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's because one thing for those s- who don't know Swan Point, yeah. if, if you 
leave aside bluefish caves, which mm -hmm. there are many questionable elements to, then Swan Point would be the oldest site uh, on this side of the Bering Sea. Right. That is known. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, we have a, a place name that seems to describe an Ice Age landscape. It's another thing to say we have a chain of place names that describe the entire ecology, you know, about every thousand years since the Ice Age to today. And I think that's why it's so important huh. to, to make those linkages across time. Yeah. So I want to zoom in a bit now on the middle the middle Tanana region. Um, and I guess to start with, so it's, it's running, uh, east to west mm -hmm. on the north side of the Alaska range. And it's in this really verdant kind of endless boreal forest, uh, kind of environment. How, how many people occupied that landscape? Um, which I believe you said was about the size of Belize. So it's smaller than most mm -hmm. U S states, but, uh, Right. Maybe the, larger than a few in the east. Yes. It's a, the, not a tiny area. The Middle Tanana people um, and the diet, we're just talking about dialects here. Um, uh, there was maybe 500 people uh, about the time of the turn of the century. Um, and uh, they'd already been, had a couple of um, diseases move through and reduce the population. So it's not necessarily representative. Right. Of who was always there. I suspect there was never more than 2,000, you know, in a really good, where resources are abundant and everything like that. But um, 500 so, people was probably a decent low low population, natural low population. Yeah, so that's, yeah, people are strung out in a sense at a really low density on mm -hmm. a huge landscape. And one which it's not always super easy to get around in between... Uh, you know, dense forest and thick kind of tussocky tundra in the right. uplands um, and swampy sections filled with uh, uh, black spruce, I mm -hmm. think it is. Yes. Um, it, how do people maintain cohesive social systems between groups that are, you know, so spread disparate. out, so disparate? This was something that the traditional um, uh, oral history and knowledge really helped me out. We don't have tribes here in Alaska. Um, the Diné people traditionally organized themselves into clans, which mm -hmm. you um, inherited through your mother. And you were heavily encouraged to marry outside your clan. And also the clans were structured into two sides called moieties. Mm -hmm. So these are super clans. Uh, um, you had and is a clan a place, a village, or is a clan a cluster in a, a section of a valley? or A clan at one time was a village and an area, according to mm -hmm. the Diné um, uh, people. And uh, at one time in the past, they were endogamous, uh, meaning so that's much more kind of like how we, how we would think of tribes. They had a mm -hmm. discrete territory, they had a discrete village, and they all married within that discrete people. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, uh, things needed to change. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the family structure completely changed to an exogamous marriage where you only married outside your clan. And then you married clans that were of the opposite moiety. So all the clans, there might be three to five clans on your side of the moiety. 
that basically were all considered your brothers and sisters. You just would never think of, of marrying them. That's yeah. kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you tried to always marry someone on the other side of the moiety. Um, and so it was very, very, very important that you knew how everybody was related. And um, so it's really uh, easy when there's low population. And mm -hmm. uh, so just a couple thousand people up and down the river. Um, and uh, there's no family records that are written. Ever, all the family records are instead uh, maintained orally. And mm -hmm. so you always... Uh, went to the elders and were like, who's, who's married to who, who you know, who's related to whom, <laughs> yeah. you know, who am I allowed to uh, start flirting with the next yeah. <laughs> uh, trade fair or whatever. And uh, so what happened was at, at some point in the past, according to um, oral history, uh, there was a lot of strife between the Tanana people and the Copper River people, the Tanana and the Atna. And um, when you have a lot of strife between two populations you can either fight it out or you can come to a peaceful solution and uh, so what the Diné decided to do was to come to a peaceful solution and they instituted they instituted the the ritual of potlatch and so the potlatch is this um this gift-giving ceremony that mm -hmm. happens where a host family takes in another family and they basically gift them all of their wealth that they have accumulated over the course of usually a year. And this would be a, a big event, like a party, and right. probably a lot of people kind of coalesce for this. Exactly. And uh, you would you would not only give um, away all of your stuff, but you would also give things according to... Um, the rank, the social rank that everybody in that opposite family had. Yeah. And you had one chance to get that right. It wasn't like you could never make a mistake because if you hmm. made a mistake and you were like, you gave the wrong gift to the wrong rank, you, you know, you messed that up. Everybody would remember that for the rest of your life and you would lose <laughs> all your social prestige, right? So there's a lot that's riding on this. Yeah. So it's not just a feasting event. It's not just a, a gifting um, event, but it's a way to uh, bring competing families together. And instead of competing violently, trying to take over each other's resources, you're actually giving the other people your resources and yeah. saying, hey, it's more important that we outcompete each other through gifts than we do through warfare or things like that. And I would think that this is, at some level, deeply necessary and kind of adaptive to be living in a place like the Alaskan interior, where I assume you, you need those communities for right. exchanging uh, uh, partners, for example, mm -hmm. uh, marriage partners, or... Uh, for, for maintaining trade connections, uh, I'd assume people upriver or downriver being the next node along these essential arteries, it, it, it seems like it wouldn't make sense to have uh, sort of a, a constant cycle of, of intense high-level violence that, that, exactly. that wouldn't make sense. Exactly, it just can't be sense. maintained. It's yeah. too expensive. So um, I was really curious as to when this change happened. Um, it's interesting that we see it in the, the oral history. Um, what might have caused it? What are the material causes for it? Can we see those reasons in the, you know, the archaeological, the ecology, ecological record? Um, about a thousand years ago, um, we, had, we entered into a cooling phase um, and uh, roughly across the North Pacific, and that really uh, was beneficial to uh, the salmon populations along the coast. And uh, 
So the, the salmon populations really um, expanded in numbers greatly during mm. that time. And that was in turn very beneficial to the human populations, all from the coast coastal California all the way up um, into mm. uh, coastal Alaska and the Bering Sea and everything. And so there's so much extra salmon, a lot of extra energy coming in. Human populations doubled, quadrupled um, wow. across the, the, all the um, Pacific Northwest coast. And that caused a lot of um, social chaos, uh, as as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, villages are growing, households are Increasing growing. competition. We start to see the adoption of multifamily houses being built. Um, yeah. People don't have to move, follow resources around the landscape as much. Now, that, now they can store food, for example. So and they're becoming more sedentary. They're aggregating into larger communities, right. which I assume would bring more, more, what would you say, more complexity or more hierarchical sort of yeah, systems you, of ma- maintaining? Right. Anytime you have like a surplus of energy, that energy is going to go somewhere. And mm-hmm. a lot of times when, when we experience that as humans, it translate in, translates into increased cultural complexity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the the people on the coast, the coastal rivers are participating. They're, they're benefiting directly from this. People further into the interior parts of Canada, um, what later became the United States and Alaska, um, they're seeing that they're wanting to participate into that, that, you know, we want that energy. And uh, so we see a lot of population movements of uh, different languages and uh, cultural groups moving across. And there may not have been enough resources for everyone. So there was probably some fighting uh, initially, but then people had to figure out how to live together. And so the potlatch, according to oral history, was what solved that problem and tied people together. And That's so really cool. <laughs> they start sharing the land. They start sharing, uh, comp- competing for resources in this this potlatch thing. Um, and then, as part of the potlatch, the elders get up and they recite how the lore of how everyone is related. Um, this person is the child of this mother and this father. Is the child of this mother and this father. And they would basically recite how everybody it, that was there present at the potlatch was related to each other. And that was how you knew uh, who everyone was uh, in relation to you, who you could um, so it's marry, really this, who was this your friends. Sort of yes. critical institution for, for reifying all of these yes. yeah. structures that maintain uh, maintain stability, especially as as population density increases and that that this is what allows the system to grow mm-hmm. in a stable way. Yep. Huh. And we, we have analogs here in yeah. the United States today. Um, our own population has grown like doubled like four or five times in the past century. Yeah. We're kind of stabilized for a while, but um, our own, uh, you know, our birth rate is falling. And so we've had to uh, welcome immigrants into the country, you know, to, to help fill those labor, those labor voids, those people voids, um, different cultures coming in. And we see yeah. a lot of cultural strife between th- that happens economically and politically. Our system of governance, just like the Diné system of governments, is split into two large camps. We don't call them moieties, we call them political system parties, right? Yeah. And, you know, and we're in this period of, in, of heightened political rivalry um, yeah. that is, for the most part, nonviolent between uh, whether you decide to call it liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. But we are in a period where um, where we are reevaluating what it means to be mm-hmm. viable sort democracy. Sort of a great reshuffling, exactly. politically speaking and ideologically. But what if we took a, a card from the Diné potlatch and, 
you know, said on one day out of the year, the Democrats would give all their resources over to Republicans. <laughs> and they would say, you know what? Whatever you want, we'll vote. We'll give you our votes on this. You know, today only. Right. And next year. It's the Republicans doing yeah. that for <laughs> You know, and it, it institutes a really... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. fascinating system. So there's, there's two sites in particular that you study that are, uh, I, I guess, mostly pertinent to the late Holocene, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, are a later component of Swan Point, and then an- another site called Pickup Sticks. I guess to start with, I guess maybe could you just tell me a little about those sites, and then what does archaeology get to contribute as right. well? So I was um, initially attracted to these sites because they had preserved house pits, um, which uh, in the Alaskan interior have been overlooked archaeologically, unfortunately. But fortunate for me, because all of a sudden I, you know, it's really fun to be an archaeologist and be able to study something that you don't have a lot of research competition. Yeah, and this book is one of the first times, the first times I've actually seen someone describe domestic contexts in the interior. I mean, I I think for people who might be, say, fans of, like, ancient Rome or something, that might seem Mm -hmm. kind of wild that, that the picture can be so fuzzy in places, but... Um, I, I remember at one point trying to think, like, I want to know what a village would have looked like mm-hmm. and trying to find a source that would actually describe a collection of houses or even a single house and what, what the physical evidence is. And there's, there was, it was really hard to find anything. Yeah, it was, uh, very difficult to find, um, there had been only uh, two anthropological studies that had been uh, conducted for the Middle Tanana people. Um, um, but yeah, we um, a typical village uh, had uh, sometimes had substantial houses, uh, sometimes had just um, brush tents. Mm-hmm. And it kind of depended on how much effort that the person wanted to put into their, their domestic dwelling. Would that depend on how, how, how long they planned to be there? Whether it would, like and what they wanted to or a do. place they'd be returning to right. for years. So a good Diné family, um, and by good I mean someone that really took their culture seriously mm-hmm. and, for example, may have wanted to participate in a potlatch and, and give that. Um, generally, as uh, a man, uh, you would have married about at about 30 years old um, because it would have taken you a good 10 to 15 years to uh, gain experience and resources in order to sort of pay a bride price, um, which I say bride price because most of the listeners may understand what that is, but um, it really was a price for the man to enter into his wife's family. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, he's, he's buying the right to um, economically and politically marry into a, a girl who was entering into her mid-teens. Um, girls married as soon as they had their first menzies, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they entered a period of seclusion which might last a couple days or might last as long as a year, um, where uh, she isolated herself with just a grandmother. Um, and uh, that probably, the length of time probably depended on how many how much resources the family had to to sustain that oh i see you know yeah. if there was a lot of, if it was a good fish year a good caribou year and you could stay in one place and not move for a year then that isolation would be a lot happen. longer yeah hmm. but uh that was a deeply um powerful time for a, a young woman because the the creating power of the universe was basically coming within her and transforming her into this being that could create 
mm-hmm. right? Um, she can now um, create new life uh, within her womb, something that men cannot do. And so that was, um, women were considered very powerful uh, because of that. And, um, and so men tried to be a part of that, but they also had to keep themselves uh, clean of, of, of messing with that energy. And now I'm getting off the side topic, but... Two men would generally, once they got married, they would form an economic partnership for life, hmm. which we can think of as almost marriage, right? Because um, you're, you're marrying, uh, as a man, I'm saying, <laughs> but I would marry a woman. Um, she's my economic partner for life. People aren't necessarily marrying for romantic love as much as they're marrying for economic partnerships, right? Um, mm-hmm. You're marrying, as a man, you would marry a woman that was um, very good. Of, of the right station of, of, from a... A family that right. had the right kind of relationship with your mm-hmm. family, and uh, and for what she could do, her work um, yeah. as part of that, and because uh, your your work as a uh, hunting was typically uh, considered a male pursuit, although everybody participated in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one of those things where work was gendered, um, but everybody did everything that they needed to do to survive. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, because I would. I mean. So in a cultural pro- norms right. bend to utility when yes uh, yeah so in a, in a proper in a proper world men hunted big big game brought it home uh, and uh, they participated in the butchering and then women uh, did the, the the sewing the processing taking care of children in the reality of course everybody did everything yeah so that when these two men would enter their families into an economic partnership a whole nother form of marriage um, they would actually move into the same house. And uh, the houses were uh, designed a little bit like the Iroquois long houses where um, one family was on one wall and the other family was on the other wall and you Mm -hmm. mirrored each other. So the man's place was in the middle of the house, um, uh, just kind of next to the hearth. The women's Mm -hmm. place was by the door on the other side of the house and the Mm -hmm. the wives mirrored each other and their female children were in the front of the house and the male children were in the back of the house. And usually you had also young male adults that were unmarried and they would also be in the back of the house until they were able to um, go out and provide um, for family. And then the elders, any grandparents that you had that you were taking care of, they also lived in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. So um, villages would usually have at least one of those larger dwellings like that. Um, And then uh, there was probably a cluster of smaller, um, uh, almost dome-shaped tent houses um, that Mm -hmm. would have just been... you basically bend one of our uh, lovely black spruce and, or birch trees over and start throwing caribou hides over mm-hmm. it. And you might get just one small family living in there. So you you could have a, a whole variety of, of those. Usually there was yeah. just a couple of families in a village, maybe two to three families per village. So they were tiny. The Diné people also had a cultural value of clean sites. So they tried to uh, dispose of uh, artifacts in proper ways because... <laughs> Much to the chagrin of, of the archaeologists. archaeologists. Right. There was a belief that, um, that anything you interact with takes on the character of the action that was being done with it. Hmm. So let's say I had a knife and I went out and I killed an animal um, and used it for food. Uh, that would be considered good energy. Um, the animal probably would, I would have believed it gave itself to me as a willing sacrifice because it knew that I needed to survive. Mm-hmm. I was sharing that food with family or perhaps at a potlatch with my, um, my 
socio-political rivals. Uh, either way, there's good intentions with that. And anyone yeah. who came into contact with that knife, some of those good intention energy would off. rub off on them. However, if I use that same knife to stab uh, someone, maybe to murder them um, in, with ill intent, all that, that bad dark energy would also be imbued in that knife. Mm. And if I drop that on the ground and someone else not knowing anything about it came into contact with that they would They're absorb still, that bad yeah. energy and that bad energy would uh, go before them and um, would interfere with their hunting luck and it could actually be the cause of a you know uh, starvation or or any other number of bad things that might happen hmm. and so this was a deep part of the belief system and so um, Dene people were just very very uh, uh, aware of keeping their stuff and their discards away from contamination with other individuals. So maybe compared with other places in the world, this would be a place where you'd expect the things that you dig up to carry a lot of intentionality yes. in the way that they're distributed. Absolutely. And uh, so organic artifacts, um, when they were going to be abandoned, they tended to be uh, buried uh, or burned. Burned um, Other, you know, Artifacts might be discarded in rivers, just in places that were not going to be not going to be affected, like interacted with with people. Mm-hmm. And so, when we find, as archaeologists, when we find village sites, we it's just almost frustrating because we we just don't find very many artifacts with them, which is a reason why archaeologists have avoided really excavating house pits and village sites because we kind of know that there's not going to be a lot there. Hmm. But when we're bringing in this traditional knowledge, now we understand why. And the little things that we do find then are going to be way more meaningful. Right. They're going to be imbued with all of that. Right. Uh, So we had a a house pit at Swan Point that was sort of oblong dome shaped. Um, We got a couple of dates from that. Um, It dates to just under 2000 years old. We had two hearths in the floor that were pancaked over each other. So there was at least probably two different um, seasonal floors that were inhabited. So at a minimum, I think it was inhabited over two winter periods. Not a lot of artifacts there. We had a few flakes, a few bone pieces. Um, and what that's telling me is that, oh, this is very classically what we expect an Athabascan household that's abandoned to look like. Um, it's just big enough for probably about one family. I don't think it was a dual family home that was there, but there's no reason to say that this is not a Diné house mm-hmm. 2,000 years ago here on the landscape, which is which is pretty cool, um, being able to um, uh, be able to use Have that sense, traditional that, knowledge yeah. that we curated just a generation or two ago and apply that to people that were yeah. living there 2,000 years ago, and it completely makes sense, totally analyzable. We found a footprint there from either a child or I showed it to an, um, an elder, and he was like, oh... That reminds me of a little woman, a, a small woman who's carrying a big load. Um, so it could be either, either or, um, either is accept, uh, acceptable um, interpretation to me. Um, the other house pit was Pickup Stick site, and that was just upstream from Swamp Point, about five miles. And it was a much larger uh, house pit depression. Um, when we excavated it, it was completely different. We uh, we didn't have a hard-packed floor in the sediment. Instead, yeah. um, what we had, we excavated all the way down to the bedrock. And then you could actually see uh, the bedrock itself, which is the regolith is very soft and um, 
if you had a good stick, you could actually like start digging into it and excavate it yourself. We saw um, a, a rectangular floor that was excavated out of this regolith um, about three or four inches down and flattened out. We found pieces of birch bark along there and a couple oh, of wow. pegs that were in there. So birch bark, when you peel it off, it naturally wants to peel or curl back into its original shape that it was around the tree. and But it's very flexible and stuff. So um, when this house was being built, uh, the people had actually laid out birch bark almost like we would do linoleum and then had <laughs> pounded these little pegs along wow. there to, to hold it into place, That's which is super kind cool. of cool. There may or may not have been a hearth in there. Uh, there was some charcoal mixed up with sediments that had... Um, that had fallen in and a bit of ash, but it was really ambiguous. And maybe there was, maybe there was a hearth, maybe not. We did notice that the regolith is so soft that as we were working on it just over a period of two weeks, um, we were wearing it down very, very fast, um, even with trying to stay away from it and stuff like that. So we had to actually pack dirt back around it just to preserve it um, while we were moving in and out. Um, and uh, so that was very unique to me because um, it was unweathered, meaning, you know, when the, when the house had been abandoned and collapsed back in, uh, that regolith wasn't exposed to the elements after it was originally excavated. Hmm. And uh, so it was just as soft today as it was a thousand years ago when um, this house was built and excavated. And so that told me that people had not been in this house very long hmm. and when it was built. And found that to be kind of interesting. We found um, a scattering of artifacts that was around in there um, towards the front of the house. Um, we found a lot of uh, bone pieces um, that were charred, uh, calcined, uh, broken up. Uh, we found refitting flakes that had been utilized that kind of went around the margins. Hmm. Um, but they they would refit either from the front of the house to the back of the house on the south side or on the north side. Um, so you could almost, it was almost like <laughs> at one end of the house, tools were being made and then they were being passed down along people sitting at different stations along the house, you know, all the way to the back. Um, and uh, so I think what was happening there was um, stone knives were ex being expediently made in the front of the house, being passed to the elders who were in the back of the house to use and mm -hmm. who, which were then, and they were used along the way and discarded, you know, as, yeah. as they were broken, which was kind of cool scene. Um, we just got back some obsidian analysis uh, on flakes that were found throughout the house, which this part's not in the book. But the um, obsidian on one side of the house is from Wiki Peak and um, Mounted Ziza. And on the north side of the house, I think it's from Batsatena. Cool. And so... Uh, I think what we actually have here is a potlatch house, a house that, that was built specifically for a single event and abandoned soon after. And uh, so we have a, a family, two families that are unrelated. They one both have their, their own kinship network. Yeah. Trade network. Another group bringing their, their, all of their stuff with them sourced from other places. Exactly. That's so cool. And this house we radiocarbon dated to um, uh, about 900. Uh, to a thousand years ago, um, some Bayesian analyses uh, bringing together a bunch of other dates that might tighten that up hmm. uh, might indicate it's more like 700 years ago. Either way, um, this is the oldest potlatch house that anyone has described um, anywhere in North America that I can find in the literature, which is really wow. cool. Many other places um, we infer potlatches, um, like with a clinket, um, 
they would have potlatches in the same houses that they were also inhabiting. Mm -hmm. So when we see these big long houses being built, we're like, oh, potlatches is probably happening. But here we actually see a building built for a potlatch and then abandoned. And, and it's almost that we call the Pompeii premise where you yeah. actually see a bunch of behaviors just frozen in time, which is really yeah. rare for archaeology. Yeah. Kind of cool. <laughs> Let me ask you a kind of a broader question. What, what for you is the value of archaeology? And I guess in particular with the kind of work you do now, what, what do you want from it going forward? I, you know, as a person who set out to uh, do archaeology of Native American people. Um, that was, of course, that desire has been with me since I was a, a, a child, but I, I recognize today that that is a settler colonial mentality mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the white people have been doing on this continent for hundreds of years now where we've been uh, excavating We've been ignoring uh, the people who've been living here for thousands of years since uh, the first people came here, ignoring what they say, their political institutions, their rights on the landscape. We've been taking all that from them, Mm -hmm. denying them their history, and then taking their cultural remains and putting it into our our temples of humanity, which are, you know, our museums and stuff like that. And and now we're really um, coming to a reckoning point. With all of that, um, it, we've we've done bad in the past. Um, these were not for good reasons. Um, mm-hmm. As much as we want to sugarcoat that, and and so we can either stop there and throw out anthropology and archaeology, you know, and just say we need to erase everything, stop it all, or we mm-hmm. can say how can we make this better. And uh, so um, I I wanted one of my work partners, my research partners, uh, to come in today and discuss this with me. Her name was Evelyn Combs. She's a a tribal member with the Healy Lake, Mm -hmm. Mendes Chegg people. Uh, Unfortunately, she was not able to come at the last minute. Um, But uh, I try to do all my research with Native people. um, Mm -hmm. And as part of that, um, it's been very important to me to develop research questions with uh, the Healy Lake tribe and members. like mm-hmm. That they actually want answered. Exactly. So yeah. for me, I want archaeology to be a tool of empowerment mm-hmm. um, rather than disenfranchisement of the people that it is, whose past it is speaking to. So my archaeology speaks to the Middle Tanana, the Tanacross people, um, and uh, the, the original people of the Shaw Creek Valley, where these sites were at, um, mm-hmm. do not live there anymore. Their descendants are now part of the Lower Tanana tribes, the Chena tribes, and the and the Healy Lake tribes, which is why I work with the Healy Lake mm-hmm. uh, people today. Yeah. So, um, I just want to make sure that all of my research questions are benefiting them, empowering them. Mm-hmm. Are people excited about it? Um, and. Uh, so that's what I want archaeology to be. That's what yeah. I want my research to be. That's how I see uh, being a good research partner is. I always uh, close off by asking where you would direct people if they wanted to learn more about this topic, whether there's a few researchers that you think are worth watching or whether there's a site that they could search that would teach them a lot or whether there's a book that you would really recommend or anything like that. Uh, research 
beyond my own. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, linguistic place name research that's been published by Dr. Jim Carey, who's the closest researcher um, I work for with on that. Mm-hmm. Another um, researcher who's doing similar, uh, who's studying archaeology uh, at a similar time zone and area with me is Dr. Bree Doring at University of Wyoming. Um, mm-hmm. Her uh, research is uh, very interesting. You can uh, find a couple of her articles online with her, her stuff. Um, and uh, let's see. Dr. Robert McKinnon's stuff was very classic anthropology of the uh, uh Dene, Upper Tanana, Dene people. Um, other than that, we don't really have a lot for the later Holocene. Uh, yeah. Dr. Potter, Ben Potter, um, has probably been the only person who's really published peer-reviewed articles on Holocene archaeology of the Tanana Valley. So he's got a couple articles out. And that was really kind of why I opted to write a book rather than a series of art- articles. Um, and so the book, The Gift of the Middle Tanana, um, really tries to uh, discuss in depth the, the culture, um, the material culture, the mental culture of the Middle Tanana people and how we as archaeologists, how that informs the archaeological record. Yeah, and, and uh, it's available on Amazon. And it's available on <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> so um, if you find my page on, I think, researchgate and academia.edu, um, uh I have a discount code for the book that you can use at the publisher's um, website. I think it gives you some like 30% off, um, which is kind of expensive. So yeah. that really helps. <laughs> I'll make sure all the links for They're this right are uh, there with the podcast. And uh, it's also worth noting that the proceeds from the book all go towards the Healy Lake Tribal Council. So if anyone listening supports this collaborative approach to archaeology, they actually have a chance as students of history to support your community partners. Um, but that seems like a good place to end it. Um, cool. Yeah, with that said, thanks for, thanks for joining me. That was great. Well, thank you very <laughs> much. <really> cool. <laughs> and thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website, where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.